Welcome to Espresso Prime, a podcast all about primes, short enough to listen to while you enjoy your cup of coffee. Hello, hello. Welcome to a new episode of Espresso Crime. Today's episode is for the last two states for season three, Crimes by State. I can't believe we are already at the end. It went so quick. So those two states are, of course, Wisconsin and Wyoming to wrap up season three. So these episodes are best enjoyed with a coffee in hand, and you can always use code Jamie5081 at javicoffee.com. That's J-A-I-M-E 50081. Thank you, Javi Coffee, for the code. Thank you all for tuning in. This episode has it all. We've got Wyoming's first and worst serial killer, a 21-year crime span, a convicted murder that escaped prison and found refugee status, one of the oldest cold cases, and a killer that donated his eyes to a medical school following execution, and so many more. So let's get right into it. And we're going to start the list off for Wisconsin with Ed Gein. He was born in La Crosse, Wisconsin on August 27, 1906. So we've got a bit of a throwback crime here. He was also known as the Butcher of Plainfield as his crimes were committed around where he was living in Plainfield, Wisconsin. In 1957, authorities discovered that he had exhumed corpses from local graveyards, making what would be a trophy to him out of their bones and skin. He also confessed to killing two women. One woman was a tavern owner in 1954, and the second was a hardware store owner in 1957. He was initially found unfit to stand trial and remained at a mental health facility. By 1968, he was judged competent to stand trial and was found guilty of the two murders. However, he was found to be legally insane and was remanded to a psychiatric institution. On July 26th, 1984, while in the Health Institute, he died from respiratory failure at the age of 77. He is buried next to his family in the Plainfield Cemetery in a now unmarked grave. We are really just starting things off. Two murders, but also taking out bodies from a graveyard is just, wow, that is next level. Second on the list is Edward Wayne Edwards, who was born June 14, 1933. He escaped from a jail in Ohio in 1955 and fled across the country holding up gas stations. By 1961, he was on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. He was captured and arrested in Atlanta, Georgia on January 20th, 1962. There is like so many states going on here. In 1967, he was granted parole and claimed that a guard in jail reformed him. He married and became a motivational speaker. But, and that's going to be a very large but, In 2009, he was arrested for murder in Louisville, Kentucky, another state, and in 2010, he pleaded guilty to two murders in 1977 in Ohio, along with two murders in 1980 in Wisconsin, which is why he is on this list. It was more than 30 years between the murders and his arrest taking place. His daughter tipped off police about his suspected involvement, and DNA testing establishes connection to the killings. Soon after this, in a jailhouse interview, he can he also confessed to the 1966 killing of his 25-year-old foster son. The motive behind this was due to ding, ding, ding insurance. In 2011, he was sentenced to death for that killing, and he died of natural causes on April 7, 2011, four months prior to the scheduling of his execution. This one really hits 
it all as far as true crime bingo goes. We've got killing after parole, killing for insurance, DNA crime connection, and a prison escape. If you're wondering, hey, I feel like I know, like, why is this ringing a bell? We did mention him in Ohio episode 89, but with that, Wisconsin crime connection, and I mean so many others, he had to be on this list. Third on the list is George Lamar Jones. He was born in 1945. He killed at least three women in Mississippi and Wisconsin from 1972 to 1997. He was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment, and he died behind bars in 2012. That is a really long span of like crime span. That might be actually longer than the one we literally use like not clickbait but as like to get you excited to listen to this episode so love that for me fourth on the list is walter earl ellis born june 24th 1960 and also known as the milwaukee north side strangler he was a serial killer who raped and strangled at least seven women in the city of milwaukee wisconsin between 1986 and 2007 up until May 2009, the killings were considered to be independent of each other. However, they then became linked by DNA profiling. On September 7, 2009, he was arrested and in February 2011, he was convicted for the seven murders and sentenced to seven consecutive life sentences without parole. I put in my notes, such a long crime span in all caps. Yep, it's, it is a long crime span, but it's literally four years less than the third one on the list so but these are back-to-back very long crime spans fifth on the list it's a little bit longer but it is just one that you kind of have to go through everything to really like get the whole picture it's just one of those so fifth on the list david spanbauer was born in january 1941 throughout his teenage years he was in trouble with the police and shortly after he joined the navy while in the navy the naval doctors thought he needed psychiatric care which his mother discarded he was then dishonorably discharged in 1959 and returned home to wisconsin shortly after on january 3rd 1960 he broke into a home stole two diamond rings, a hunting knife, alcohol, cash, and a handgun. The next night, he robbed another house. This time, he used the stolen handgun. Do you guys hear things escalating? So a week after the robbery, he broke into another home. There, he raped her. Shortly after, on January 12th, he raped another girl who was babysitting her cousins. The girl's uncle came back home, and David Spanbauer killed him. At the age of 19, David Spanbauer was tried in a Wisconsin court. The judge labeled him a sexual deviant and sentenced him to 70 years in prison. After spending 13 years in prison, he was released in May of 1972. After being released, he went to school and that was at just like a technical college and was living at the YMCA at the University of Wisconsin campus. There, he let an escaped prisoner borrow his car. However, the escaped prisoner was arrested after a robbery, so he kind of, like, got off clean on that. Like, it would have been a lot worse for him had he been caught um, and giving someone his car. That was an escaped prisoner, but it gets worse on his own anyway, so... That summer, he worked for the park and city beaches, and then that same summer, he told a a psychiatrist that he was having sexual frustration, and the psychiatrist told him he must have been born the R word. I will not put that in, but like for a direct quote, that is what he was told. Like, it's, 
I know he's done terrible things and he will do even more terrible things, but his cry for help with his sexual urges and frustration was just completely ignored and the worst was about to come. Like, let's try to prevent people, especially like you just know it's going to get so much worse. But August 19th, 1992, a 20-year-old by the name of Laura finished her shift at the mall and she was meant to visit a friend, but she never showed up. Her car was found at a friend's apartment parking lot and to this day, she's still missing. Four days later, a 10-year-old went missing. Her bicycle was found near her home and her body was found six weeks later and it was found in a cornfield ditch. Two years later, on Labor Day in 1994, a 12-year-old was riding her bike when David Spanbauer abducted her and molested her. He then drove 75 miles and five or six hours later, he strangled and stabbed her, throwing her body into a steep ditch. Police, hundreds of volunteers, and the FBI searched for her and they found her body five days later. So he was apprehended November 14th, 1994, while he was on probation for a rape conviction, and that's when he confessed to the murders. He was then sentenced to three life terms in prison, plus 403 years. Six on the list, no stranger to the true crime niche. There's actually a newer Netflix doc about him, but absolute must to be included. So Jeffrey Damar was born in May 1960 and was also known as the Milwaukee Monster. He was a serial killer and sex offender who was committed who committed the murder and dismemberment of 17 men and boys between 1978 and 1991. Many of his later murders involved necrophilia, cannibalism, and the permanent preservation of body parts, typically all or part of the skeleton. Although he was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder um, and a few other disorders, he was found to be legally sane at his trial. He was convicted of 15 of the 16 murders he had committed in Wisconsin and was sentenced to 15 terms of life imprisonment on February 17, 1992. He was later sentenced to a 16th term of life imprisonment for an additional homicide he committed in Ohio in 1978. On November 28, 1994, he was beaten to death by Christopher Scarver, a fellow inmate at the Columbia Correctional Institution in Wisconsin. That, um, of course, I think everyone knows about his case, but we did a like deep dive on it episode 11 as well number seven leads us to christopher scarver who as mentioned killed jeffrey dahmer so christopher scarver was born july 6 1969 he found himself in prison due to going to the wisconsin conservation corps training program office on june 1st 1990 and forcing employee steve loman down at gunpoint he then demanded money and john fane who was on a site as a manager was there as well he received 15 dollars, which would now be a equivalent to 31 this enraged him he shot and killed steve loman so he then sent to john fan who was the site manager now do you think i'm kidding i need more money he then shot loman twice more this was post-mortem john fan then wrote a three thousand dollar check which is worth about double today fan then fled to his car and Scar scarver fired at him but missed in 1992, Christopher Scarver was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Two years later, he beat and killed Jeffrey Dahmer and Jesse Anderson. Eighth on the list is Lorenzo Fane. He was born April 2, 1971. He's a serial killer and rapist who between 1989 and 1993 murdered one woman and five children in the states of Wisconsin and Illinois. 
In 2001, he was convicted and sentenced to death, but the following year, the governor of Illinois commuted all prisoner sentences to life imprisonment. Number nine on the list is a long one, but it is really interesting. So Laurencia Bembenek was born August 15th, 1958, and she was also a police officer as a career. On May 28th, 1981, at approximately 2.15 a.m., Laurencia's husband's ex-wife, Christine, was murdered in her Milwaukee home. She had been shot point-blank into her back through her heart by a single shot from a pistol. Christine had been gagged and blindfolded, and her hands were tied in front of her with rope. Her two sons, then 7 and 11, found her face down on the bed. The older boy said that he seen the person who he thought was a masked male in a green army jacket and black shoes. He also said the man had a long reddish colored ponytail. Just for reference, Laurencia was blonde and she weighed 140 pounds and was approximately 5'10". In 1982, she was apprehended for first-degree murder of Christine, her husband's ex-wife, and was sent to prison. On July 15, 1990, she escaped prison in Wisconsin. She and her partner went to Thunder Bay, and they were, and that's in Ontario, and they were arrested on October 17, 1990, due to a tourist seeing a segment about Laurencia's escape on America's Most Wanted. This is totally becoming the new killing for insurance. There seems to always be at least one case per episode that someone is being arrested from America's Most Wanted show. So Laurencia is now arrested and then she seeks out refugee status in Canada. She claims that she's being persecuted by a conspiracy between the police department and the judicial system in Wisconsin. The Canadian government shows some sympathy for her case. They obtained a commitment that Milwaukee officials would conduct a judicial review of her case. The review did not find evidence of crimes by police or prosecutors, but it did detail seven major police blunders which had occurred during the murder investigation and because of this, Laurencia won the right to a new trial. Laurencia then voluntarily returned to the U.S. on April 22, 1991, and rather than risk a second conviction, pleaded no contest to second-degree murder during a hearing held on December 9, 1992. She was sentenced to 20 years, which was commuted to time served. She was released from custody three hours after the hearing, having served a little over 10 years. On November 20th, 2010, she died at a hospice facility in Portland, Oregon at the age of 52. 10th on the list is Joseph Paul Franklin. He was born April 13th, 1950. He was a white supremacist and serial killer. He was convicted of several murders and received six life sentences as well as two death sentences for his murder spree from the late 70s to early 80s. He also confessed to two attempted murders in 1978 and 1980. He was executed for the 1977 murder on November 20th, 2013 up the list for Wisconsin there was definitely some very interesting cases and now we're going to go into Wyoming which has a lot of throwback uh, like wild west kind of crimes and then some more recent very interesting ones um, and we're going to start Wyoming's list off with a throwback crime to 1868 when Polly Bartlett and her family came to South Pass City to open a boarding house for gold miners. So over time, several guests that had stayed there were mysteriously vanishing. So a lot of people said that uh, Polly would give her guests whiskey and then steak that was laced with arsenic. So a man named Barney Fortunes, um went there, he stayed, 
and he went missing. So the Pinkerton Detective Agency was hired to conduct an investigation to figure out what was going on at this boarding house. So at that time of the investigation, the Bartlett family left town and a reward was offered for their capture. So while investigating the disappearances um, of kind of what was going on and how they were doing it, um, they discovered 22 young men's bodies buried on the property in a corral. So then Polly's father, Stephen Bartlett, was killed in a shootout. Polly was apprehended and sent to jail in Atlantic City, Wyoming on October 7th, 1863. Before she could stand trial, though, she was shot and killed by a vigilante. If all of this is true, uh, she would be Wyoming's first and worst serial killer because it was so long ago, there's not a ton of like factual evidence apart for like there are a lot of different pieces of information like the investigators you know getting 22 bodies off of this property people mysteriously vanishing but with it being so long ago there's not like it's not the same as cases today right but it is so interesting 12th on the list is John McCall. He was born in either 1852 or 1853. Again, these really old throwback crimes. There's not a ton of detailed information, but it was one of those two years a long time ago. He was also known as Crooked Nose or Broken Nose Jack. Not the best nicknames, but anyways, he shot an Old West legend by the name of Wild Bill Hickok from behind while Wild Bill played poker in a saloon on August 2nd, 1876. Because of that murder, John McCall was executed on March 1st, 1877. 13th on the list is one of the oldest Wyoming cold cases. Olga Mauger, who was 21 and her husband of just six days, went on a camping slash hunting trip in the wilderness area near Dubois, Wyoming. Olga went missing on September 17, 1934. Her husband, Carl, said that he left her at the campsite while he went to, like, scout things out, and when he returned, he couldn't find her. To this day, it is unknown what happened. Fourteenth on the list is Walter Earl Durand, born in 1913 in Wyoming. He became known as an outlaw after he escaped from jail. He killed four officers while resisting being recaptured during an 11-day manhunt in the Beartooth Mountains of Wyoming. He died in 1939. 15th on the list is Charles Raymond Starkweather. He was born November 24, 1938. As a 19-year-old between December 1957 and January 1958, he killed 11 people in Nebraska and Wyoming. Ten of his victims were murdered between January 21st and January 29th, which was the date of his arrest as well. In this month-long murder crime spree, his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carly Ann Fugate, was also with him. So both Starkweather and Fugate were convicted on charges for their parts in the homicides. Starkweather was sentenced to death and executed 17 months after. Fugate served 17 years in prison and she was released in 1976. Sixteenth on the list is Andrew Pixley. He was 21. He murdered three young girls in Jackson's Wart Hotel in 1964. He was found naked and drunk in the room surrounded by the dead children. He was convicted and executed in Wyoming's gas changer without appeals by his request in 1965. His eyes were removed and donated to a Colorado medical school, also according to his wishes. 
17th on the list is Rodney James Akala, born August 23rd, 1943. He was also called the dating game killer as his crimes were committed during the during or there around the same time that he was on a show called The Dating Game. He was sentenced to death in California for five murders committed there between 1977 and 1979. He also re- received an additional sentence of 25 years to life after pleading guilty to two homicides committed in New York in 1971 and 1977. His connection to Wyoming is for the 1982 murder taking place in Wyoming, which he was charged for in 2016. While he has been conclusively linked to eight murders, his true number of victims remains unknown and could be much higher. Authorities believe the actual number is as high as 130. So we did a full deep dive on him, and that is episode 33, The Dating Game Killer. Number 18 on the list, Matthew Shepard. He was a gay 21-year-old student at the University of Wyoming, and the only reason I mention that he was gay is because of the horrific thing that happened to him. He was beaten, tortured, and left to die on October 6, 1998. He was taken to the hospital by rescuers where he died six days later from severe head injuries received during the horrific beating. Suspects Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson were arrested shortly after the attack and charged with first-degree murder following his death. Both McKinney and Henderson were convicted of murder and each of them received two consecutive life sentences. Shepard's mother brought national and international attention to hate crime legislation at both the state and federal level. In October 2009, the U.S. Congress passed the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act, commonly the Matthew Shepard Act or Shepard Byrd Act for short. And on October 28, 2009, President Barack Obama signed the legislation into law. The Matthew Shepard Foundation was established with the mission to amplify the story of Matthew Shepard to inspire individuals, organizations, and communities to embrace the dignity and equality of all people. More info on the foundation can be found at matthewshepard.org. 19 on the list is Andrew John Yellowbear Jr. He was born in 1974 and was a defendant in one of Wyoming's most notorious capital murder trials. He was convicted in April 2006 of premeditated first-degree murder in the death of his 22-month-old daughter, Marcella Hope Yellowbear. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Authorities say that the 22-month-old child was tortured to death over a period of several weeks starting around May 15, 2004 to July 2, 2004. According to testimony of the girl's mother, who was also sentenced to 60 years in prison for her role as an accessory, said that uh, he beat the girl daily in their apartment using a variety of objects, including the handle of a claw hammer, a sport sandal, a 2x4, and a plastic stabilizer bar from a child swing set. That's absolutely horrific. 20th and last on the list is another case you have probably heard of. As it did occur in Wyoming, I wanted to include it though because it was so mainstream and so many people heard about it. I will just quickly go through the timeline and then a few things that are happening now with it. So July 2021, Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie set out on their second long distance road trip together. On August 12th, a witness called 911 regarding the couple. This was in Utah. 
The officers from that police department, um, they saw a van driving erratically and they conducted a traffic stop. Body cam footage shows that is Brian and Gabby in the van and kind of going through what is going on between the 911 call and the driving erratically. She had a bruise on her, etc. On August 17th, Brian took a flight from Salt Lake City to Tampa, Florida. At this time, Gabby stayed at a hotel and according to staff, checked out on August 24th, which is the same time that Brian returns to the trip. August 25th was the last post that was made to Gabby's Instagram and the last time Gabby spoke to her mother. On August 27th, a text from Gabby was sent to her mother, which read, Can you help Stan? I just keep getting his voicemails and missed calls. The message raised concern for Gabby's mother, who said Stan was Gabby's grandfather and that she never referred to him by his first name. On August 30th, a text was sent that said, No service in Yosemite. Her mother expressed uncertainty about who was sending these texts. On September 1st, Brian returned home alone to his parents' home in Northport, Florida, in the van they set out in. On September 11th, after not hearing from her daughter since late August, Gabby's mother filed a missing persons report. Four days later, Brian was named a person of interest. Brian's parents hired a lawyer and, based on his advice, remained silent, refusing to talk to anyone about the case. Police surveilled the laundry home and saw Brian leave on September 13th. On September 15th, they saw his car return. Police believe the person who exited the car and entered the home was Brian. On September 17th, Brian was reported missing by his parents, who claimed to have not seen him since September 13th. It was at this time that the police realized that they had mistaken Brian's mother for Brian himself on September 15th. On September 19th, human remains matching the description of Gabby were found at a camping area in Wyoming, not far from where the van was previously seen. Her identity was confirmed in an autopsy determined that the manner of death was homicide by blunt force injuries to the head and neck with manual strangulation, which occurred three to four weeks before the body was found. On October 20th, Brian's skeletal remains confirmed by forensic dentistry and some of his belongings were found as well. His cause of death could not be determined by autopsy and his remains were given to an anthropologist for further examination. On November 23rd, it was announced that the anthropologist concluded that Brian's death was by suicide. On January 21st, 2022, the FBI revealed that after examining Brian's notebook, they found he admitted to killing Gabby, then deceiving people through text messages that she was alive. He was officially blamed for Gabby's death by authorities afterwards. Most recently, Gabby Petito's parents have been awarded $3 million in damages from the estate of her late boyfriend, Brian Laundrie, after suing his parents for how they handled their daughter's disappearance and death last year. The Petito parents are also now suing the Laundry's parents' lawyers, claiming he knew their daughter had been killed. So that wraps up today's episode for Wisconsin and Wyoming crimes. Thank you for listening, and I will see you Sunday for more Sunday Scaries by Espresso Crime. Bye for now.